the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. And uh, as we're nearing Election Day, we're exploring the uh, different candidates that are running for election. And tonight, we're going to be talking to Judge Wanda Jones. Judge Jones, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. I appreciate it. My my pleasure. But uh, running for judge, you you are a judge. Uh, you've been sitting in the position of a common pleas judge for how long now? So I was appointed in December of 2018. Uh, I started January of 2019. So I've been on the bench for almost two years. Now, for for any lawyer who's been practicing law and then becomes a judge, it's a tremendous honor besides just a job. And this is not just a job. This is an entrustment where people trust your judgment, your independence, and your ability to do judge work. How did you find switching over from being a practicing lawyer to being a judge? What, what were some of the things you noticed? Well... The the biggest thing was that um, as a lawyer, you are arguing cases. You are arguing your side of the case. Um, you, as a judge, you are not arguing any side of the case. You are uh, you are getting from the the attorneys their arguments, and you are really the keeper of ensuring that our justice system that people have faith in our justice system because you're the one who makes sure well in my courtroom uh, i can say that i follow precedent uh so when people come into my courtroom to argue a position i make them bring case law with them so they are often having to cite the case that they are relying on in making their position uh, known to the court so that i have the necessary information to make a decision that I don't really care which side wins or loses, um, whereas as an attorney, you are advocating for your side, your position. So it's very different that you are not advocating for anyone other than the citizens of the county to ensure that um, they have faith that our justice system will be fair. How, how difficult was that to get into into that mode where you're you're no longer advocating for one side or the other, but... Uh, now, you represent essentially the state who's going to have somewhat uh, a final, not somewhat, 99% of the time at the trial court level when you make a decision, that's final. Uh, getting into that sense of, uh, frankly, power, uh, did, did you feel a little odd about it when you started it, or did you sort of fit right into it, or what What were some of your thoughts? I, I, th- I do believe that it was a... a- a natural adjustment for me. It was definitely an adjustment, um, but it wasn't an extremely difficult adjustment for me. And I think um, part of that is I really feel like there are certain characteristics that make a good judge. 
Um, some of those characteristics um, might be taught. Some of them, I think, are just uh, innate. And I happen to have some of those characteristics. Um, I, I think I may have mentioned this when I was on your show before, that I believe everybody has a voice. I believe it's important to hear both sides. And even when I practice law, when someone would come into the office and I was evaluating whether I would take that person on as a client, what I would do is I would look at it from both sides in making a decision about whether I would take that case. Um, and I would, because I practiced a lot, a lot of uh, family law, divorces, things like that. So my perspective was always, I can, I can zealously represent you if your end goal is to be able to, um, at the end of this, if you've got children together, to be able to be at your child's wedding years from now and be able to be cordial to one another. Like, those are the kinds of um, ideas that I have about, um, you know, relationships. So that just sort of naturally fell into the role of a judge. We're talking to Cuyahoga County Common Police Court Judge Wanda Jones uh, about being a judge. And uh, Judge Jones, when we talk about uh, judges and how they handle things, we talk about the term judicial temperament. How would you define that term? I think judicial temperament is, those are the words that people say about a judge when the judge isn't around. Um, it, and it's, you know, the idea that that judge will be fair, that that judge will listen to both sides, that, that he or she will uh, recognize the bias that is implicit um, in whatever situation that he or she's dealing with, and also um, that I will carry myself with, with dignity and integrity and do the right thing without any consideration for, you know, political consideration, friendships, you know, it's, it's about the law and whether I will um, ensure that I am protecting, you know, the, um, the idea of a separate branch of government. When we talk about uh, the rule of law, we talk about applying that fairly. Uh, and you, you mentioned something that's very important now, and that is how you treat the job with dignity and uh, and respect, respect for the, the role you're playing. How have you been finding people who've been coming to court, uh, not just the attorneys who this is what they do every day, but the, uh, the people who come to court? Do, do they have any problem with showing respect to the court, or do you find that uh, not to be the case? Actually, I, I believe, Nick, that um, respect goes both ways. Um, and I think when I treat people um, with respect in, in my courtroom, it comes back. Someone recently asked me that if a defendant in a criminal matter has ever screamed at me or thrown anything or um, acted inappropriate. And I will tell you that that really, that really hasn't happened. I've had, you know, one victim um, in a domestic violence, violence situation who didn't want the defendant who, you know, she was the victim, but she did not want him to go to prison. And um, I, I listened to her very carefully. I listened to all of the parties very carefully. But at the end, it is my job to ensure that the public is protected and I had to impose a sentence that was appropriate given the situation, even though I knew that the victim was going, not going to like it. Um, 
you know, it, it's the protection of the public uh, that I have to consider. Well, well that's when we, we think about walking in. I may have mentioned this last time uh, you were on the show, is that as a lawyer walking in on a Monday morning and seeing all these people walking in voluntarily, coming through security and getting on the elevators and going up to courtrooms, where they're going to voluntarily, voluntarily face criminal sanctions, probably. Uh, and the fact that they're only doing that because of the respect and the trust we have in the system. And we call it the Justice Center for a reason, I suppose. Uh, that is that uh, justice, you know, if you did something wrong, you, you know you did something wrong. You know that's going to be a problem. Uh, but they, they want to be treated fairly, and, and that, right. that basically does happen. The um, Real quick, we have a, a little bit of time before our first break here, but uh, with the number of cases you have, our, our judges here at the common police court level, they handle both civil and criminal cases. About how many uh, civil cases and how many criminal cases do you have on your docket at this time? So I actually have more civil cases than criminal cases, although the criminal case, cases do take up more time um, because the you know there are more pre-trials, there um, is, um, uh, you know, a person's freedom is on the line, um, you know, and so the, crim and there's more, you know, motion sometimes. So those do tend to take up more time. Um, but uh, I had, well, I can tell you when I first started, I had uh, around 157 criminal cases and around Oh, I don't remember how many civil cases, but there were more civil than criminal. Um, and I disposed of, in 2019, a total of around 1,040 cases. It was a combination of both civil and criminal. So um, that's how many cases I resolved and disposed of in 2019. So we're very busy down there. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I think most people aren't aware of the fact that beside handling a case and uh, moving the lawyers and, and the parties through a case and, and getting it wrapped up is, is only part of it. You have to administer all of these cases that keep coming through the system and right. uh, and make, make sure that happens. And you have to report this to the Supreme Court of Ohio, do you not? We do. And it's, I mean, that information is publicly available. Um, as a matter of fact, I referenced that information during the, um, when I had my plain dealer endorsement interview, I referenced um, it's on the Ohio Supreme Court's dashboard, um, and it, you can see how many new cases every judge in the state of Ohio got in at any given time, how many they disposed of each month. And you can, you can look at this information, uh, the public, anybody can see this information. It's uh, publicly available. Well, there are, there are metrics to this procedure. I almost uh, compare this to like an operating room where someone is brought into an operating room. This is the biggest day of their lives. But for the people working there, it's another day at the office. Same thing with our court system. We're, ta we're talking to Judge Wanda Jones. She's a common police court uh, attorney, uh, not attorney. She's a judge at the Cuyahoga County Common Police Court. We're talking to her about being a judge, and we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips, the advocate here on WHK. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. We're talking to Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Judge Wanda Jones. Judge Jones, thank you so much for joining us tonight. You're quite welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. My, my pleasure. Uh, I know you're running for judge, so this is uh, the, the time we, we really want judges to be on and, and educate the people about what judges do and why they should go down the ballot. Uh, it's always been a, a battle that there's a term called undervoting, where people vote uh, and they go down the ballot, but they don't go through all those judges. Um, right. If people want to, if people want to check, if people who are listening want to find out about the judges, how can they do that? Is there some websites or something, or some recommendations, endorsements, and so on? Yeah, there are, Nick, and I think um, because I'm I'm actually down at the polls um, every day um, during this process talking to voters, and many voters are unaware of how judges are, um, you know, how how the judicial role works. They're unaware of where to get information, but there is the Plain Dealer Endorsement Interview. There is Judge for Yourself. The League of Women Voters do they do judicial they did do judicial forums this time. There were actually um, the Black Women's Pack they did judicial and candidate forums. So the thing is, you don't want to rely on one source of information. You want to actually go to several of these sources of information so that you can make a, a, a decision, an informed decision. And then also, you want to uh, never forget good old-fashioned Google and Google the candidate's name. Um, a lot of the candidates do not have opponents, but the ones who do have opponents, which, you know, in the general division, there are only three uh, seats that actually have opponents. So it's not as much work as it looks like um, because there are a lot fewer uh, judges that have opponents. So you, you went through the, uh, the the gauntlet and being uh, vetted out and uh, going to interviews and so on. What, what groups, all of the ones you mentioned you've been to? Yes, I was endorsed by the Plain Dealer. I was endorsed by the Black Women's Pack. I was endorsed by uh, the Criminal Defense. Well, I got uh, an excellent rating by the Criminal Defense Bar Association. I got an excellent rating by... Um, the, well, I got preferred rated by the Norman F. Minor Bar Association. I got, uh, I'm trying to remember them all. I was endorsed by Cameo, the Cleveland American Middle Eastern uh, Organization. I uh -huh. also was rated ex excellent by the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association. And uh, I was highly rated by the NAACP as well. Well, very good. Well, you, you can't do better than that. So congratulations. But in the meantime, besides campaigning, real, real briefly, how does a judge campaign? What I mean, we have this election obviously <laughs> being overshadowed by the presidential race, and then we have all these other state and uh, local officials, and then we have tax issues and other uh, issues on the ballot until we get right. to the judges. Uh, how, well, how does the judge go about doing this? Nick, it might, and maybe that's part of uh, why people uh, skip those races. They're sort of boring in that they're very, there are very few things that a judge or judicial candidate can really say. You, you're not supposed to be out there saying, I will advocate for this, I will fight for that, because those show, they give the perception to uh, voters that you are biased in some way, whether 
they support that position or not, it's not appropriate for a judge. So we really can only say a few things, that we will be fair, that we will act with integrity, that we will be impartial and follow the law. And so that might make for boring uh, forums, but uh, that that's really all we can say. Oh, that's what, uh, that's what we want. It's, it's sort of like uh, how for the Super Bowl you're going to have the most neutral, unbiased uh, referees out on the field. Because essentially right. that's what a judge did, what a judge does. Well, right. but you're the eyes and ears of, of being in the court. You're there all the time, uh, and we've been living for like over seven months now with COVID. Uh, how is right. the court handling trials in in this COVID distancing uh, community spread situation? Especially when you have people in jail awaiting trial. How's that working out? Right. So I was one of the judges on the we had a sort of an immediate kind of task force when everything is shut down. And uh, we tried I came in. We all came in on a Saturday and we tried to get the jail population down as low as we possibly could. Um, obviously not uh, releasing anyone who would be a danger to the public, but just. Um, you know, trying to uh, accommodate uh, plea deals and getting uh, cases resolved uh, with that extra day in court. And uh, we did that um, to reduce the population or help reduce that population in the jail. So uh, mm. we did that. And in addition to that, uh, I came up with a, um, a, a written sort of template for defense lawyers to use in order to waive their client's physical presence uh, for arraignment at the court so that fewer attorneys and defendants would come into the building. And then we also moved to a Zoom format where I actually um, would have the hearings via Zoom, and I still do that. Um, we are still trying to ensure that um, as few as people, um, the, the fewer the better in terms of people coming into the building. Um, and that's uh, something that uh, I intend to continue uh, for quite some time. And then jury trials, um, we just finished our second jury trial in, in downtown, and that was actually held at the MedMart. Um, and uh, they went well in terms of social distancing. We used the bigger space. Um, I was on the jury flow committee um, as we were getting procedures in place to have uh, jurors coming back downtown. So we worked very hard. We never shut down, but we worked very hard to transition quickly to uh, social distancing in order to ensure um, that the public and the people that work down there are as safe as we could possibly make it for us to be able to continue our jobs. Getting jurors to come down uh, to the Justice Center for, for trials to sit as jurors uh, prior to COVID, it, it was sort of almost a cattle call kind of a thing. They'd uh, issue s subpoenas or summonses for a couple hundred people to show up. <coughs> Excuse me, and they would they would show up uh, downtown and then wait to be called for a jury. Now, I, I think I've heard they changed that a bit. That they only call people down for specific trials now. Is is that right. so? And if so, how's it how's it working out? It's actually working out really well, and that is true. What we're doing now is you, we still send out summons to a significant number of people, but rather than coming down, they call first. They call a number, and then if they need to come down, they come down to the global, um, the MedMart, and then uh, they are chosen from there. 
And then, um, Judge, we have the option of whether we're going to have our trial in our courtroom or over at the MedMart. Um, and depending on what the nature of the trial is, you know, judges each make their own decision about that. And I believe the last two were both held over in the MedMart. Are there more witnesses now being presented by, by Zoom or by video or witnesses still coming into court? Witnesses are still coming. Witnesses are still coming into court. Um, what we do is we have procedures in place. So all of the courtrooms are uh, now uh, retrofitted with the plexiglass um, surrounding the judge, surrounding the. I think all of them are. I know mine is um, surrounding the witness stand. And so whenever a witness is taking the stand so that you can see, because it's very important for you to be able to see the witness's face, entire face, during their testimony. So they wear a traditional face covering that covers the mouth and nose mask, fabric mask, as they go sit on the witness stand. And then once they're behind the plexiglass, they take that off and put on a shield, which is clear. And then the uh, jury and or judge, the trier of fact, can see the witness's entire face during testimony. I, I saw a mask recently that is a typical face mask in the sense that it covers the nose and down over the bottom part of the chin, except uh, the part that goes around the, the lower part below the mouth is cloth. It looks like cloth or some type of material. But from that point on up over to the nose, it's all a clear shield. And uh, this way you can see people who have a mask on, yet they're they're actually able to talk. You can see their facial expressions and that kind of thing. The uh, Going right. back a bit to criminal, I, I don't know if people realize that if, they're, if you're charged with a criminal action and you cannot make bail, you're going to sit in the court or sit in the jail until your case is called for trial. Uh, right. So that, that's sort of an interesting situation. Um, do we have any of those people who are running up against the clock that they have to be tried or, or released? Well, there, you know, there was a tolling order in effect, and uh, after that tolling order ended, um, you know, it's a matter of because we are only able to try so many cases at a time, so we submit our list to the administrative judge, and then he has a, a bunch of. Uh, uh, processes that he looks at in order to determine who is going to be next. And it takes into account several considerations, like the length of the age of the case, if the person's in jail, if they're in the community, um, the um, number of witnesses that will be required, um, the nature of the charges. Wow. Those things are all considered. And, and, it, and, it goes, and it goes on and on. Well, Judge Wanda Jones, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Appreciate it very much. And, and good luck to you in your judicial race. Thank you so much, Nick. And thanks for having me on. You're quite welcome. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In the next two segments, we're going to be talking to Ohio Supreme Court Justice Judy French, uh, who is going to sort of enlighten us on what's going on with the Supreme Court and what this election is all about.
Uh, Justice French, Judge Judy, how are you? <laughs> I'm terrific. Thanks for having me. Yes, you're not the same Judge Judy who's on TV all the time, but uh, you're no, the Ohio I'm Supreme Court as, Justice Judy. Yeah, yeah not, not nearly as well paid, but I am way nicer, I can tell you that. <laughs> way nicer. Well, uh, we're going to talk a little bit tonight about you and about the Supreme Court and what what are the issues, not that are facing the court, but what kinds of issues face the Supreme Court. First, uh, if you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, and you, you're a sitting justice on the Ohio Supreme Court, and you've been a justice on the Ohio Supreme Court for how long? For eight years. So I, I arrived on January 1 of 2013, and I've been serving ever since. And uh, with that, I, I noticed looking at your, your background is that you did serve as a uh, appellate judge on the 10th District Court of Appeal, Appeals out of Franklin County. And uh, that's the district that handles all the administrative agency appeals and, and other things. How did you find that particular job? Yeah. How did you well, like it? I, you know, yeah, I loved that job. You know, being an appellate judge or being a justice is a lot of studying, you know, a lot of reading and writing and editing and and uh, hearing oral arguments. So it's it's kind of a quiet job most of the time, uh, but I just love it. Every case that we see now and every case that I heard at the 10th District Court of Appeals is something different. So whether I'm picking up a, a, a physical file or I'm opening a virtual file, it's always something different, uh, an important case coming out of the state of Ohio. A couple of things I noticed. I think I saw the 800 opinions you were involved in. Well, those are just the number that I wrote uh, as a court of appeals judge. Uh, those are so the ones you wrote. Okay. Have, yeah, those are the ones that I, I was the author on. Um, but because there are three judges on every opinion or on every case that we hear, uh, I heard uh, in in that eight years would have heard well pretty close to 2,500 cases, and that was just in my eight uh, years on the court of appeals. Now, uh, writing an opinion is like writing a short or a long-term paper. And uh, I, I talked to one appellate judge one time who, after you do this for a long time, as you hear a case, just someone explaining a case to you, you can already, already picture what that opinion is going to draft like, at least the format of the opinion. Uh, do you find writing opinions to not be uh, – you don't have writer's block? <laughs> Well, I, you know, occasionally, uh, for sure, at the Supreme Court, I've got three really wonderful lawyers who work with me, and uh, so they can take a crack at, at drafting. At the Court of Appeals, I wrote a lot of my own opinions, though, and that judge was right. As you hear, you know, you read the, the briefs, which are never brief, by the way, but you, you know, you read the information submitted by the lawyers, and you hear the oral arguments, and, and you do start to get a sense. Or what you think, how you think the case should come out. I'll tell you though, there are times, and I know anybody who who writes as part of their living, I think will agree. There are times where it just doesn't write, uh, you know, the way that you think it's going to, and you end up changing your mind uh, because what you thought was going to be persuasive really isn't persuasive when you put it down on paper. But if you like that kind of, mm -hmm. you know, quiet studying and reading and writing, it, this is just an incredible position to be in. Well, it sounds like a lot of pressure to, to get it right, especially when you're going to be coming up with an opinion that's going to be relied upon. And, and the Ohio Supreme Court is definitely the court of, for the most part, last resort here in the state of Ohio. Uh, 
with the your background also, I noticed that you argued some cases before the United States Supreme Court. How did you find that experience? Oh, that was just an incredible experience. Yeah, I argued two cases as an assistant attorney general. So I was representing the state of Ohio before the United States Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, there's so much product that goes in uh, before that argument, but it's really the argument that, that is the most fun and, and what most people pay attention to from the outside. But uh, it was just to stand before those nine justices uh, was just a just a wonderful experience for me as as a lawyer, somebody who really loves constitutional law. Uh, it was it was just a wonderful experience. Um, pretty nerve wracking, uh, to be honest. I was I worked right. really really hard uh, not to be nervous in that moment. But I think the best piece of advice that I got then, and and the advice that I give to lawyers appearing before the Ohio Supreme Court now, is you want to have a conversation. You know, you want you know your case so well. And, and you want to tell the court all about your case, but the most important thing is to answer their questions and to get in a good dialogue with them. They're going to, they're smart, they're capable, they're really informed. They don't know nearly as much as you do as the lawyer. And so the more you can engage with them and answer their questions, the more persuasive you will be. So I, I try to bring that advice to the Ohio Supreme Court too. And uh, it is it is equally as fun um, to be on the other side of the bench and be able to engage engage with lawyers uh, to to get the cases right. We're uh, watching like last week what was going on with Judge uh, Amy uh, Comey Barrett and her uh, vetting before the Senate committee. Uh, with regard to the questions they're asking her and, and have been asking. It really points out how strange it is to be a judge and not a politician. And yet, even in, in the state of Ohio, Supreme Court justices have to run for uh, political office and have to basically conduct campaigns and so on. What kind of limitations are there that a justice has or judges generally have and what they can and cannot say when they're on the campaign trail, so to speak? Yeah, it is. It is differently. It is different from that process. Although I think most judicial candidates would say that they're on the hot seat uh, every day uh, during during a campaign and and trying to field questions uh, from the public and from the media and and interested groups. Uh, and and you're right. There are a lot of things that we just can't talk about. And the reason for that is, you know, everybody out there has a right to a fair trial. You, every citizen, has a right to an unbiased judge or to be in front of unbiased justices. And so the more, even though I, I have First Amendment rights and I can certainly exercise those rights and speak freely, the more I talk, that impacts your rights. You know, that impacts the rights of people uh, to feel like they are in front of unbiased judges. And so what judicial candidates have to do is not talk about uh, issues or uh, questions that could come before us. And we can't talk about cases or issues that are being decided anywhere in the country in another case. So we have to be just really careful in answering questions that we're not venturing into something uh, that could come in front of us or might suggest bias. You know, what I'm, what I, what's most important to me and what I try to portray all the time is impartiality. And so that means when somebody, it happened just today, when somebody asked me a question uh, about something that I think is going to come in front of us or is already in front of another court, I have to 
make that explanation to say, yes, I do have, of course, I have personal opinions, but it's important for me not to uh, not to talk about those um, and to remain completely unbiased. So when that issue doesn't co- does come in front of me, I haven't formed any opinions, and I can re- rely on the evidence and the briefs and the law in that particular case. So we are constantly uh, walking a walking a tightrope of of trying to be responsive and trying to uh, let people know why it's important to elect us, but at the same time. Um, not give information that would suggest um, in any way that we have a, a particular viewpoint that could influence then uh, the outcome of, of a case that would come in front of us. I was going to say, the, uh, you know, how, how do you walk that tightrope? And by the way, we're talking to Ohio Supreme Court Justice Judy French, talking to us about the inside, about the Supreme Court and, and how one runs for that elected office. Uh, when we talk about impartiality, uh, how is it that uh, you can actually manifest an idea during a campaign that you are an impartial uh, judge and that uh, you know you're you're able to maintain that throughout your history? Do you, do you bring up cases mm-hmm. that you've ruled on before, or do you rely upon newspaper articles? Or we have about a minute till our break. I was just wondering how you do that. Yeah, you know, I think one way to do it is say, look, here are the thousands of cases that I have ruled on, and they have gone lots of different ways. And uh, as I'm asking questions of lawyers and those oral arguments, these are the kind of thoughtful questions uh, that I ask and that, you know, that are important to me, uh, whatever it is to show, look, this is my history as a judge. I present or I look at every case in an impartial and unbiased way. And uh, and my record demonstrates that. So that's those are the kinds of things that I think judges uh, talk about in the way that we present ourselves in a campaign. That's probably the best way you could do that. Again, we're talking to Justice Judy French about the Ohio Supreme Court, and we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate here on WHK Radio. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for Night. Thank you again so much for joining us and joining us with Justice Judy French from the Ohio Supreme Court. Uh, Justice French, thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. I, I have enjoyed our dialogue so far. Yeah, well, it's fun getting sort of some insight in, into what goes on in the minds of judges because, especially on the Supreme Court, we just picture you sitting at the top of the pyramid of, of all law and order. And uh, and that's the last word on what goes on here in Ohio comes out of the Supreme Court. But you're talking about how do you uh, establish that you're impartial, and I guess a lot of that might be determined by how do you look when you're on the bench during oral arguments and people are arguing cases. And here in Ohio, uh, these oral arguments are available to people uh, online, aren't they? They could actually watch videos to see what's going on. Yeah. Yes, they absolutely can. In fact, uh, once the court opens up again, uh, the public is welcome to come in and watch them and watch them live. But we we do have cameras in our courtroom. I'm I'm proud of that fact. Uh, The United States Supreme Court does not have cameras in its courtroom, but we have cameras. Mm -hmm. So we webcast our our arguments live. They're archived and then they show up on TV. 
So I do hear around the state when people say, oh, I watch you. I watch you on TV and I even watch the reruns. So I'm, I'm pretty proud of the fact that it is so publicly available. And even this year, we were doing arguments by Zoom and they were uh, broadcast out on the Ohio channel. So I've, I've seen those show up uh, on late night TV as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that we are accessible to the public. That's interesting because we are still in the middle of a COVID pandemic and uh, that the Supreme Court uh, is is basically dealing with that. And I know we're not supposed to talk about any cases, but have COVID issues, uh, has that been something that the Supreme Court has or may be involved with? Yes, definitely from the very beginning. And and really for the Ohio Supreme Court, we were we have been in a supportive role for our local courts all around Ohio and our hundreds of, of judges having to deal with uh, a shutdown and, and still administering justice while uh, reducing the number of people that, that could come to the courthouse and potentially be um, exposed or, or spread, spread the virus. And so we've, we've really in a, been, been in a position to give them resources and guidance on how to open up, how to conduct jury trials, and uh, how, to keep, you know, how, how to keep those cases moving. Uh, for the Ohio Supreme Court itself, you know, we've had to make an awful lot of adjustments as well. So our employees have been home uh, for months now, working from home. We've got essential workers at the courthouse itself. Uh, but but we have, you know, as I mentioned, the Zoom arguments. But uh, we have had some matters come to us that relate specifically to the shutdown. For example, we had a couple of actions uh, filed with us from inmates who thought that they could should be uh, released because of the virus. We had filings uh, by lawyers and parties who didn't think they should have to go to trial and wanted us to basically shut down a trial or shut down a courthouse. And uh, that kind of a case was really an opportunity for us to say, look, we have limited authority as the Ohio Supreme Court. We are not uh, what is known in other states as a unified court system where we're the boss of everybody. You know, we do write rules. We do provide guidance. We do provide resources. We provide guidelines. Uh, but we we can't uh, direct uh, a lower court judge to do something except in in some pretty limited circumstances. So a lot of the cases that you've been reading about have started at that lower court level. And if there were an appeal from one of those, that would then go to the Court of Appeals and then it would then come up to the Ohio Supreme Court. So uh, we have been involved in many different ways, but I I, I uh, would be uh, remiss if I didn't say that it's really your local judges who are dealing with this on the on the front lines, and, and they're doing a fantastic job. Well, one of the biggest questions I have as a lawyer is, how do we get to do jury trials again? Uh, and I guess that's a question that we have in all 88 counties uh, as far as mm -hmm. how do you get jurors to actually show up? How do you get to set them up in a court environment that's going to be COVID safe with distancing and, and masks and so on? Um, yeah. Does the Ohio Supreme Court, do they weigh in on giving advice or setting rules for uh, d deadlines and statutes? Well, in some ways, yes, and in many ways, no. Um, what we've been doing is providing resources to those local courts, but we also put out, a, a, out a, an order that said, you know, we're going to bump all the guidelines, or I'm sorry, all the deadlines um, uh, for, court, for court filings all around the state. 
Uh, we provided lots of guidance about how to handle certain cases. Uh, but really, it's those local judges making a decision about how to best have jury trials again. And you can imagine that uh, in a place called, you know, in a place like Vinton County, which is our our smallest county by population, uh, how they might conduct conduct a jury trial is very different from what you're going to have to do in downtown Cleveland. And so recognizing that there are lots of different uh, populations in, in Ohio, uh, the key really has been for that local court to get the resources that they need to conduct trials. So in some cases, you're going to see uh, you know, plexiglass barriers uh, between each juror around the witnesses, potentially around the judge. Uh, so in addition to things like mask requirements and taking your temp getting your temperature taken when you come into the courtroom, there are, just, there are a lot of considerations about space. So in the Alliance Municipal Court, for example, um, they have a community theater next door. And so the jurors can, can come into the community theater where there's lots of space, and it's not until the jury is chosen that they come into the courtroom and they put the jury in the open courtroom as opposed into a, you know, as opposed to being in a smaller uh, jury box. Uh, I, you know, every county that I go into, they're handling it in a different way, always with the idea of how do we reduce uh, contact how do we reduce the number of people coming to the court? And sometimes that's by using technology, you know, getting away from the idea of jury trials for a moment. You know, you can all of those, as you as you know, all of those status conferences and things that would normally bring lawyers and potentially clients to the courthouse. Um, a mm -hmm. lot of those things are being done by technology now. So that has not only uh, has that kept us, I think, um, in a better place with respect to the virus, but boy, has that really modernized a lot of our courts around Ohio. So I'm, I'm just really uh, pleased with the innovation and the creativity that local judges and lawyers have shown uh, to be flexible and still get things done, but maybe do it in a, in a very different way from how we were doing it just a year ago. Oh, I hear you. Well, it reminds me of the old uh, cliche, necessity is the mother of invention. And Absolutely. Uh, when you got to do it, you got to do it kind of thing. Uh, in the last couple of minutes here, anything that you see coming up uh, in the next couple of years that would face uh, the Supreme Court as challenges that they're going to have to resolve or address? Yeah, I, you know, I do hear um, lots of uh, lower court cases that are happening and, and issues that are coming up as I'm traveling around the state. I do try to travel a lot, and uh, I've been to all 88 counties a whole bunch of times, and and constantly uh, have my, you know, ear ear to uh, ear out there to to see what's happening. And and I know there are a lot of people concerned with issues relating to the pandemic. And as I said, those would start at the lower court and then go to the courts of appeals and then come up to the Ohio Supreme Court. But you know, the Ohio Supreme Court handles every type of legal case that anybody can think of. So whether that's workers' compensation or insurance or taxes or public utilities. I mean, you name it, and we have to address it. So every time I've tried to look ahead and predict, well, here's what I think is going to be the big issue, it's always something else. Uh, and something so new. Things like, <laughs> yeah, it's always something new, uh, but you can bet that the Ohio Supreme Court will be in the middle of whatever legal issue is out there. 
Well, that uh, certainly is a place for the Supreme Court to be, and that is to take all of these things. Real, real quick, just with a simple number, about how many cases uh, are requested to come to the Ohio Supreme Court each year, and how many do you take? Yeah, we get a re- we get requests for about twelve or thirteen hundred uh, to come in, and we might take seventy five uh, per year. So the, that percentage kind of changes from year to year, uh, which is way more than the United States Supreme Court takes, by the way, in terms of a, a percentage. But remember too that we've got a lot of other cases that come into us. So whether it's death penalty or public utilities or taxes or discipline relating to lawyers and judges. All of those cases are all are also coming in. So altogether, wow. I'm casting votes in about 2,000 cases per year. That's that is a lot. Well, Justice uh, Judy French, uh, thank you so much for sharing with us today, and, and best of luck with regard to the election coming up uh, this November. And uh, well, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again. Take care, and thank you again, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset Sat and drank my fresh mint tea With nothing to do until morning